Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. And I'm welcoming right over the head of Steve's wife. I'm waving hello to the video. Well placed, Liz. Right <laughs> I know. It's great. So in any case, we are here to talk about the return of Cotton Malone after two years. Lord, it seems like forever. It's been a little while. He took a little time off. He needed rest. And uh, uh, this book is interesting because I wrote it in 2019-2020. And I know it's going to sound terrible, but I literally have forgotten it because I've written two other novels since then. So my mind has been on, on other things. Lucky uh, th for you, I have read it. <laughs> yes. This book, um, well, I reread it uh, a couple weeks ago to get ready for this because I had to get back in there. It was supposed to be published last year. And when I switched publishers over to Grand Central, they wanted the standalone. So I did Omega Factor, and this book got bumped this year. So it just got bumped over. Uh, so it's unusual for that to happen. Um, this book was the first book written uh, in our new home. And it was written during the construction of the home. So there's a lot of the workers who worked on the house are characters in the novel. <laughs> and... Uh, we're doing an event in Florida next week, and they're all going to be there. All mm -hmm. are coming. Everyone, they're all in there. So it's uh, it's kind of my thank you to them for all they did in making the house a reality. Oh, that's very. When did you move in? We moved in in October of twenty. Um, I finished writing the novel probably around summer of twenty is when mm -hmm. I finished it, and then it was it was been published. Should have been published, uh, well, I finished it, no, I shouldn't say that, around Christmas of 20, I finished it. And it was, should have published, as I said, in February of 22. Well, and, I'm impressed and, that you two are still happily married, because I understand one of the most divisive things any couple can do uh, is actually build a house together. And do together. it during a pandemic, too. <laughs> yes, that would have added a certain yeah. amount of, right. Yeah, for uh, March, April, May, June, July, August, September of 20, that was the height of the pandemic. And that was when the house was in its full swing of being constructed but these guys kept working they kept working and they kept going and uh, made it happen well we'll come back to a construction as the theme of king ludwig's reign so we'll be talking about that but let's go back a moment and talk about the omega factor because it was very cool to go to Ghent and talk about the alder piece you didn't really deviate from the sort of thing you like to write about you no. just had a different cast of characters it's action history secrets conspiracies just a new character nick lee who was fun and the book did very well, and people seemed to like him. So you might see him again one day. You never I was, know. I was going to put in a bid. You might I hope just see him way. again one day. Yeah. Right, just yeah. in case Cotton decides to like take another stay year in the bookshop off. or take whatever. another year off. Uh, people right. didn't. They missed him, but they didn't forget him, which is great. I love the idea of a bookseller who's actually a secret agent. <laughs> the thing, the thing is, if you actually are a bookseller, you can't just close the store willy nilly and go off to be a secret no, he agent. Has, he, he, has, he has, he has, people. He has people as you do. Exactly. He has people who take right. care of everything. You have to yes. do that in order. I mean, that's the implausibility of many um, of the cozy books, in particular. You know, somebody has a great candy shop on the shores of Lake Michigan in a town of like 500 people, and there's enough income and yeah. enough business. Right. And they, strangely, and they can just like leave, you know, to go. I, I make a point in all the books to for Cotton to lament a little bit of that he's not at his shop where he should be. All right, he so should be working there. Why? Why is he suddenly in Bavaria? Well, he's uh, he's been called by Luke Daniels. Luke is uh, my younger character, who's in a lot of the novels. And Luke needed a favor for him to come and do a little, just a little something he needed done at Harem Kimsey, which is one of Ludwig's castles. 
And that's the opening scene of the novel. Mm -hmm. And once that happens, he gets drawn in. And it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. And he can't walk away. One thing, he's very loyal to Luke, so he's not—he's going to stick it out with him. And so together, they uh, they have this adventure. Cassiopeia is not in this novel. She'll be back next year, but she's not in this novel. And uh, I kind of rotate them in and out. Luke's going to get his own book later this year in the summer, June 27th. It'll be coming out. So this is sort of a prelude to that, to lead into that new that but series. But that's one of the fun things about writing a series, a long-term series, is that you end up with extra characters or characters that you develop that you really yeah. like who can have a life of their own. They can, and Luke Luke deserves a book of his own. He's a good character. Uh, uh, it wasn't my creation. It was Elizabeth's creation. She came up with the idea of having Luke, and uh, so um, he's a younger Cotton. He can do... He can make mistakes. He can be impetuous. He can, you know, things that Cotton, if you Cotton did it, you go like, whoa, come on now. You're a pro. You don't do that kind of thing. But Luke's new at this. But he's getting better and better. And in, in his own series, he doesn't have Cotton with him. So you're going to see him alone working Ooh. without Cotton. You have a serious water chase scene in this book mm -hmm. that... Um, on, on the lake. And we were on the lake. We actually yeah. got on that ferry boat and rode that ferry Me boat too. and did it all. And uh, we were the only ones on that boat that day, in fact. We were there on a cold winter day, and it was raining. So we were the only ones on that boat. So I could uh, I could kind of imagine and do what I wanted to on it. So let's talk about King Ludwig, who is one of the most bizarre characters and interesting of the 19th century. Did any, any of you know anything about it? No. no. All right. So Bavaria was the largest and richest of the German kingdoms, very Catholic, um, went back way far in time um, before the German Federation kind of got pulled together in the second half of the 19th century. So he had an enormous income. He was probably closeted, so he never married. He was a cousin of Queen Empress Elizabeth of Austria, who was a very strange woman named Sisi, who ended up being assassinated. And Ludwig died under very suspicious circumstances. No one knows for sure how he drowned in the lake. Was it a suicide? Did his doctor finally kill him? Did people who were tired of his extravagance kill him? You know, what happened? And you don't, you don't plumb that answer because you don't really can't guess what it would be. Well, I, I, I hypothesized uh, how it happened, um, but it wasn't my hypothesis. Right. I, I, there was a great book by an author named Greg King. Mm -hmm. He wrote a biography of uh, Ludwig, and he hypothesized what may have happened in that lake that day using all of the available facts. Right. And his hypothesis is pretty good. I mean, it really is. It makes sense. All of it fits. Every one of the bruises, the everything that happened, the coat, Ludwig's coat being off and found on shore. There's a, a lot of all these questions. And so, uh, and I credit that back. If you want to read his book, it's credited in the writer's note. You can take a look at it. What I don't like about Ludwig, I don't like it when he's called mad. I don't think Ludwig was mad. I don't think Ludwig was insane. I think Ludwig was probably bipolar or chronically depressed. Today, we would treat him with medication and therapy. He would have, you know, he'd be much different. But in those days, none of that existed. And uh, they, I, when we're over there, you hear it a lot. Well, he was crazy. He was crazy. Well, he, no, he wasn't really crazy because he created all that stuff. Well, I mean, he really did. The one thing is he had this enormous income, so he was able to do whatever he wanted to. And one thing he did was support Richard Wagner. So Richard Wagner, the composer, was kind of a monster in many ways, although a brilliant creative, as often is true with really creative people. Um, and he, Ludwig supported him and meant much of Wagner's work, in fact, was financed 
by Ludwig. But Ludwig's hobby, well, here we are, construction, was building castles. Building. Building castles. So Neuschweinstein, which is gorgeous, is the Disney castle. If you, any of you have been to Disneyland and seen the fairy tale castle, that is actually inspired by it's Ludwig's castle. Interesting story to that. Walt Disney went there in the 30s and saw it and was immediately struck by it. When they when he started to build Disneyland in 1955, he said, I want to use that as the model to go by. So he they, they actually made a model of New Schweinstein. Yeah. And they were laying out Disneyland in the model form because they always did that beforehand. They put everything in model form. Walt was coming to inspect, and they weren't really ready yet, so they turned you Feinstein around backwards and put it backwards on the on the on the display. Well, Walt walks in, takes one look at it, says, "I love it. That's what I want right there." And that's literally what Sleeping Beauty's castle is—the backside of New Feinstein. As you walk up the hill and you come up and look at the backside, that's what it is. Um, and you know, Walt felt like that would be what a fairy tale castle, and it is. When you go inside, it's amazing. Only one floor was finished. Uh, well, two floors were finished. Uh, the vast majority of the castle remained unfinished, uh, but it is quite remarkable inside. And when I was there, the guide showed me something that I never knew. I never knew. And this is not giving away anything in the book. Um, there are murals all over the place. And in the king's study, there was a mural up on the wall. And in the top left corner, there's a bunch of faces and men standing up. And one of them is actually Ludwig himself. The, the, the painter put Ludwig's face in there on purpose because Ludwig was irritated with him that he was not producing as quick as he needed to produce, and he was afraid he'd be fired, so he appealed to Ludwig's vanity and put his face up there. And it was really amazing to see that, and when I saw it, because it's not in any magazines, it's not in any books, it's only something the guides know. And so I worked that into the novel. That's definitely worked into the into the into the whole book there of that that story. Those are the kind of things you learn when you're there. We were there on a seven o'clock on a on a morning before the castle opened, and I had gotten arranged a tour through it. Uh, and it's nothing special for me. You can you can actually do that if you're an academic or historian or whatever. You can contact the German uh, tourism folks, and they will arrange that for you. And we were there and, and they took us through there, which was just remarkable to be in that place empty. But when we left, there was a lot of people standing outside when we were heading out there. That castle is very, very, very busy, even in this, even in the wintertime. Right. Well, you can imagine that this hobby of building castles was not well received by um, the government and so forth, because that's where the money was going, was in all these construction projects. And if, if any of you ever read Manson, which is a section of the Wall Street Journal on Friday, they have these ridiculous houses. And, you know, lots of lots of really wealthy people have multiple homes, and they don't necessarily even live in them. You know, they just want to build them or remodel them or tear them down and rebuild another one or whatever it is. So Ludwig was kind of like that, only his thing was castles. Well, incredible creations that he made. He he had an amazing imagination. Those remain today the three largest tourist attractions in all of Germany. So his legacy is very strong, uh, what he had created. He only finished one. That was uh, Linderhof. The other two were never completed. Heron Kimsey or New Schweinstein were never finished. But there are parts of them are. And that's my favorite place. I love that. I love Bavaria. I love everything about it. I've been wanting to put Ludwig in. And as you say... He, he got very frustrated because he didn't have the money to do what he needed to do. 
He also didn't like the, cons the, the confines of being a constitutional monarch. He wanted to be an absolute monarch, <laughs> that he could do whatever he wanted to whenever he wanted to. And he literally did get a, a man and sent him around the world to find him another kingdom. That's a true story. And there's a journal the man wrote doing it. And when I heard about that, I said, eh, that's great. That's got, I got there. So in, in the real life, they never found it. But in this book, they did. And now Germany, China, and the United States all want that last kingdom, but for three entirely different reasons. And so the race is on to, to get it, to get that kingdom. Yeah. It's actually one of your most interesting historical and surprising. We can't tell you why it's surprising, but it really is. Um, backstories that and I, I marveled that you actually thought about and then made it work. I stumbled on it, to be honest with you. The, I, I don't want to tell you the connection because it would give away a surprise, but there's right. a surprising connection here between two things that should not be connected at all under any circumstance, but they are. They actually are in real life. And when I learned of that connection, I said, well, there's, okay, now it's coming together. Now it's beginning to, to, to be, be a novel. Because I remember I do something from the past, something real, something that is unique and, and, and you may not know a lot about it, but, it, but it, the trick is it still has to be relevant today. So who cares what Ludwig did? Who cares what he did? Well, I, we stumbled onto this thing, and yeah, it does matter today. It matters a great, great deal. So um, it turned out to be a fun adventure for Cotton. It really did. Well, it did. So he's drawn, let's go back to the very beginning, the stuff we can talk about. He's drawn there by Luke. What is Luke there for? Well, he's been brought in because there's something going on with the current Duke of Bavaria. Uh, Bavaria does have a very strong uh, independence movement. It's, it's there to this day. Bavaria never signed on to the German Constitution. It never really joined the Confederation formally. It was drug in after World War uh, I, and then furthermore, after World War II, it basically was just forced in. Um, and so with that there, you know, with, 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 with the Duke himself, and there's something going on there that— you know, they want to be free of Germany. Well, there's a way to be free, but they've got to jump through some hoops to make that happen. And that's where all those things come into play that I can't tell you about because I don't want to give away the book for anybody. Uh, but they, uh, they're, they're interesting. And most of them, 99% of them are real that I, that I used in the novel are real. The writer's note, again, will clear all that up for you at the end. Talk about the chase scene, because that comes up way at the beginning, and it's one of your more interesting, exciting ones. I wouldn't say more interesting, but certainly exciting. Well, we were on that ferry. It's a it's a big, giant ferry, and it occurred to me what would happen if Cotton got his hands on it. You know, what could he what could he do with this ferry in the middle of the night, you know, where, where he pretty much can do whatever he wants to? So he does. He, he actually uses it in a very unique way to kind of protect Luke. Luke is uh, under fire on the lake out there. The Kimsee is the largest lake in Germany. It's huge. They call it the, the German Ocean, basically. It's humongous. And um, like I said, we were there, and it just I wanted to work everything in. Every, everything I could come up with, I wanted to try to work it into the book as much as I could. So, you know, international thriller writers, there's always some, like, mysterious either security people or... Um, mercenaries or something. I used to kind of think it was all fiction, but now you've been reading about the Wagner Group, right, which is fighting in the Ukraine for Putin. And in my, it's just my view. I think he's getting ready, the guy, he's going to stage a coup. I really do think that's what's going to happen here. 
Well, he has his own little army now. But he does not the most disciplined army. army in the world. No, you know? but he has his army and he has money and he's younger yeah. and he's meaner. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's a real shot that he may, in fact, wind up. A lot of fodder there for thriller writers. Lots of fodder there. <laughs> Do you remember, you know, after 9-11, the whole thriller writing thing, after actually it was after the wall came down. Um, it, what was it, 1989, 90? So thriller writing, international thriller writing, swung away for a great deal from the Cold War and started going to... Absolutely. It went to the Far East, and then after 9-11, you know, it was all in the sandbox for a really long time. But it is swinging back again towards Russia because we're in a renewed version of the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we, my niche is to keep it as close to reality as I can. Right. And so a lot of thrill writers don't. They create their own world and their own motivations and everything is there. I try to keep it as close as I can, though, you know, you got to trip it up a little bit. And in my world, uh, Russia has always been the antagonist. I've never made them that friendly. And in the Luke books that are coming up, they're going to be very prominent. And in the second Luke book, Russia is going to be very prominent in that. You know, Daniel Silva's the same thing. If you read through the whole Gabriel Alon series, there's always Russia. It's always, you know, he comes back to it time and time again. you got to have an antagonist. I mean, you know, so they're as good as any, you know, to have, you know. Uh, but there, I, I, there's something with Russian history that always fascinated me that I never could make work with cotton, but it worked with Luke. But we started out with you in the Amber Room right here right in the here. Poison Pen. Right I still here. remember there was... My pictures, it's still up there. <laughs> You took me um, down. Well, only because we we repainted and we are going to have to. And you know, the really terrible thing about being in business for thirty three years is how many of those authors are no longer with us. Mm -hmm. So we realized that we were going to need to revise the whole picture. I remember gallery. last a while back. I remember seeing my picture up. You were up, up there. there. There's a there. wonderful photo of Sue Grafton. I had dark up there. hair. Yeah. And everything. I know. It was wonderful. I, I remember and Michael that. Connolly at his first ever book event, which was actually here, looks like, you know, he's the child of 13. He's got long hair and the whole thing. Yours was like the second or third book event I ever did. Yeah. Yeah, it was very it's, new. You were the first book event I did, you ever did where I traveled to it. To get here. Yeah, the others were local, where I was right. in my home there. But to come here, fly here, and do it—it it was it, exciting, wasn't this it? This was the oh, it was. It was <laughs> back when you were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to go. You know, let's go. And uh, now, after 19 tours, it wears. Are on you jaded? No, I still I enjoy it. I still enjoy doing it. It's just it's 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 more difficult now. It, you know, as it was then. You know, to, to you know, traveling is more difficult now. Traveling is more difficult, and the weather is not helping. Or, which can you imagine being on the plane from New Zealand, sixteen hours heading towards JFK, and and you had to turn around because they had a fire in an electrical panel. Mm -hmm. hey, what kind of airport was that that they couldn't even I mean, fix their electricity? We woke up this morning, <laughs> you know, plane delayed three hours. Yeah. Boom. You know, just yeah. perfect weather. Everything's great. There's nothing wrong. Your friend, hours. Mr. Rollins, texted me this morning from Cleveland, yeah. hoping because there's a huge storm yeah, about to home. hit. And his yeah. plane was delayed, and now he's really panicked that he will land in Denver and be staying there. So nothing is. My husband asked me today why we're leaving on Sunday to catch a cruise, a, a Great Lakes cruise ship in Duluth, Minnesota on Tuesday. Ooh. And I said to him, because we actually need to allow the, you know, it might be frozen. <laughs> in September? 
Uh, oh, September. Yeah, no, September. Now. I thought you said now. No, 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 no. no next it, September. They're about to, they're we were buying. We were buying tickets today. You, to, you know, figure it out. But I mean, you know, and he came grumping back in and he said, "Yeah, why are we going on Sunday?" And I said, "Well, because only an idiot would go on Monday and wind up missing the ship, Rob." That's a good point. You need to get there earlier because we had we had that trouble. We almost missed one once. That the same thing. But now, right now, there's a storm headed for Minnesota. Tomorrow it's supposed to be the the cool thing about our tour, the storm is up here and the southeast is all in a heat wave and we're right below it all the way through. So it's we, just luck. It is luck. It is luck. We're just right, but right now in Orlando it's ninety degrees, right now. Yeah, uh, so we're going to stay right under the snow line all the way. I read in the paper today that Orlando is the single biggest tourist destination in the United States it is? this year because of all the, you know, the things besides Disney that are there. So do you find that somewhat burdensome? Hmm, not at all. We don't, uh, we don't, uh, where we are, we kind of stay in our own little world. We don't really go out what we call go on I-4, don't get on I-4 unless you have to. And if you have to, you do it, but you don't right. have to. But Universal's building a $5.5 billion new park, you know, a whole new giant park. It'll be open in two years. And But you, you get used to it. Orlando is uh, spread out. It's very, very spread out. So it's not, you know, concentrated in. But uh, we live down, you know, in an area where we don't have to get on I-4 very much. So... Speaking of travel, travel has always been a big part of your preparation for writing books. Mm -hmm. Did you go to Bavaria for this one, or did you call on a past trip oh, to no, Bavaria? Oh, no, no, we went. We went uh, twice, actually, just Ooh. for the book. I've been to Bavaria about, I don't know, 10 times probably. I, I've been to Bavaria a lot. But we, we her, you, her and I went, and then we went back with uh, an author, Lexi Blake, and her husband. We went back. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah. Do you know the book I'm giving away tonight? Look at that. Look at there. There it is. And this book has an amazing backstory. It actually is a British mystery because three colleges of Oxford University have a chalet in a rustic out part of France, and every summer they do um, they they do sort of academic retreats at this chalet. So it's basically a British Agatha Christie kind of mystery set in the French Alps. I talked to her. Uh, we did a, a Zoom event on Wednesday. It was really fascinating. No, we. Uh, no, we went specifically, and that's when I arranged with the Germans to be able to go into the castles before they opened. Right. So I could see some things that and and take my time and not because they'll rush you through normally. Uh, they they don't let you just linger around. But they they we were in the castles for two two and a half hours by ourselves basically. So I got to go around and think of things. I wanted to think it through. You know what I would do. And there's a large chase scene through Neuschweinstein, a very large chase scene there. Uh, what I've done, what I like to do is I like, I like those places to become part of the story. So in order for them to do that, I need to have some type of action sequence going on around that place so that as I'm describing to you the place that the point of view character is seeing as they're in, involved in that hunt, you're learning about the place at the same time. So you get a double duty. You don't, one of the rules of writing is story never takes a vacation. So you don't stop the story to tell you about the place. I need to do it simultaneously. And in order to do that, I needed some time to think it through. Now, the, the Germans will not let you take pictures inside those places. No, they won't. Not even if you're there alone. Though two of the castles did. Two of the castle guides let me do it. 
uh, one, he would not. He said, no, you What's can't. What's their rationale just to protect I have no idea. It's insane thing? because I, there's no, I told him I'm not selling these pictures. They're, I understand you don't want me to sell them and profit from it. Right. I got that. I'm not doing that. Uh, I have no flash. I'm not going to do any of that. But uh, two of them said, yes, please, go ahead. You're welcome to do it. And, but the third guy, he would not do it. He was terrible. He was terrible. So we got him, though. Mm -hmm. What I would do is I I would say, I would look over to Elizabeth and say, I need me, you know. So she knew what to do. So she would talk to him a little bit. And she would take him, and they'd walk over. Did you have a camera in your collar or something? No, I'd just take the phone and just start pushing, <laughs> you know, just start pushing. Yeah, because I'm not taking flashes. I'm not hurting anything. But I need the pictures later to write the doggone story. Now, if I can find those same pictures in books, then fine. But usually I'm taking pictures of things that are very weird, like door handles, hinges, things like this, that I, that little details that you don't have. And he, he was tough. He would not let us do it, but she, she, she distracted him. You charmed him, did you? She, I would just <laughs> give her the signal. She would go say, well, show me this right over here. Can you explain this to me? And I just start snapping away uh, and, uh, and get as much as I, much as we could. So you've been some really interesting places. Um, Poland fairly recently. Uh, no, we're going in uh, three, four weeks. Uh, the la the last. I thought you did go when you when you wrote the. Oh, I, I, be, I wrote. I did go to write the novel, but we're yeah. going back with the Steve Barry and fans trip. Uh, oh, we're okay. We're taking forty-seven of our closest friends. They're going back, uh, and uh, for the finals, it's the last one of the Steve Barry's and fans trip. So uh, we're gonna. We've already set it up. We're going over there in uh, the end of March. And uh, for seven days, we're going to see all the stuff from the Warsaw Protocol. Don't see all those things. But we went to Pro we went to Poland uh, like four times before I wrote the Warsaw Protocol. Yeah. And President Sosnowski, which I truly loved. President that was a real Easter egg in there. Yeah, James Rollins' real name is James Chukowski, and so right. the president of Poland in the book is James Chukowski. And so uh, we actually had some of the people who have been on the Steve Berry trips the other night, and Jim was at our house, and they were thrilled to have the president there and, and be there. <laughs> he was he was very to, to get to meet him. He uh, spent the night with us last Thursday night when he was he did an event nice. in Orlando. He was in Orlando. Right. So, any of you have questions? I don't know that we can say a whole lot more about the book without ruining it. I um, give it away. You know, no. I can answer it. I'll try. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. You, you're talking about the the thing that's the thing from the past. Well, um, mostly from being somewhere and hearing about it. Uh, usually from traveling. I'd say ninety percent of them come from being on the ground somewhere. You know, the the uh, the Romanoff prophecy came that way. Uh, the Alexandria link came that way. Uh, this book, to a large extent, came that way. So you have to be somewhere and someone says something that's common to them and common. You know, they, they don't think anything of it, but I never heard of it before. And I go, whoa, back up. Tell me about that. Uh, sometimes I'd get it from reading. I'll be reading a book or a magazine article or something and I'll stumble onto something. But most of it's being on the scene and hearing stale. When I was in England, someone told me about the Bisley Boy legend. Never heard of it before. As soon as that lady told me that, I realized there's a novel there. And that became King's Deception. You know, I could, I, so it's just, I say all the time, if you go look for an idea, you'll never find it. You have to be where the idea finds you. And it will find you. If you say, I'm going to go on a trip and I'm going to find an idea for a book, 
uh, we were on a trip, just what we call a love trip. It's just us. And, and we, there's no work. There's no nothing. It's just fun. And we go and, and do it. And all at once, <laughs> bad things happen. <laughs> and I, I looked at her and I said, uh, it found me. <laughs> I, I wasn't looking for it. I didn't want it, but there it is right there. And so it turned into a work trip. And we, uh, and that the Lincoln myth came from that, basically came from that. You know, when we were in Salt Lake City and the lady told us something that I, she said, you, you of course knew about the deal between Brigham Young and Abraham Lincoln that did this and this. And I went, whoa, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know anything about that. Back up. And so, um, so you just never know when it is. Luckily, I'm okay for about three years. I'm good for three years. Let's go back and talk about Xi'an because remember when the mm -hmm. the book in China, I'm trying to remember. We talked. I guess it was afterward when because I have been there and there's been there. there's two 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 great things you learn if you go. Have any of you been to the see the terracotta warriors in Xi'an in China? Great. Beautiful. So if you remember, the two really cool things is that when the emperor, what's his name, Chu? Chin. 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 The emperor Chin had a carriage that had a very deep bottom to it. And he liked to ride around his kingdom. And one day, riding around his kingdom, he died. And so they put him on ice because they had all that space in there. And they drove him around his kingdom because they didn't have a succession plan. Mm. And so if, he, if they'd announced he was dead, it would have been chaos. So they put him on ice and they drove him around. But eventually, he is buried. Um, in a giant mound. That the rumor is, and it may or may not be true, that there's a, a lake of mercury within that, uh, and therefore, he's one of the very few burials like that that so far, I think, nobody well, has actually they, so that's, they, that's the reason they give. I they know. They can put on hazmat suits and go in there. Right. It's the greatest archaeological site in all of China. They will not allow anyone to go in there. Right. They And so, of course, I got us in, caught Malone in there, obviously. Did you go inside the mound? I, I created it myself I, from, from the accounts of, we have accounts from when it was made. Okay. Of what is supposedly but you didn't physically. Oh no, you can't. In. You can't. That's what That's I thought. But they they supposedly made a map of his kingdom in jade, and the oceans were of mercury. And of course, mercury never deteriorates. So it's been there two thousand, you know, two thousand years. It's still there. But they could easily get around that if they had to. For some reason, they will not allow any excavations inside that mound. And and you would think they would because it's the greatest archaeological site in all there. But I, so I just created my own way. That's the emperor's tomb. So you go, you'll learn all about that tomb and 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 what goes on inside that tomb. And then the warriors themselves. And I actually have a warrior. I have an exact reproduction. Of a Life warrior. size. Yeah, made there, made uh, there. When how they, did you get it home? When well, we didn't. They toured. <laughs> they toured here. They okay. Remember when they? Oh, had, that's right. They I had do the remember tour all that. over the yeah. country, and they sold. The, the warrior, but they're made at the same spot where the originals are made, then shipped over here. So it took about three months, and it came one day. And it's in a big crate, and it stood up, and it's heavy, heavy, heavy. Yeah. It's because it's just dirt, solid dirt. And when we we moved twice with that warrior, and it's and it's taken like six people to carry that guy. You got to be real careful because he's made of dirt, and you can break him. And uh, but he sits now in our entrance hall. He's right there when you come in. He gets he gets really defamed in holidays. 
at Christmas, I put a Mickey hat on him and, and I put a stocking okay. in his hand and he gets, a, he gets decorated for, for. So have you ever been tempted to pretend that you found the tomb of Genghis Khan? I thought about Genghis Khan's tomb and I've thought about it many times because it is fascinating. But then I say, okay, so what? We find Genghis no, Khan's tomb. Right. I got to, I got. There's got to be a reason why, you know, today, because it is uh, quite remarkable. No one has a clue where he, where, or Attila's either. Attila the Huns, same thing. Uh, so we don't know. But the, the, the Huns were, you know, they didn't really, they didn't really have treasure. That was not their thing. Conquering territory was their thing. Right. They wanted territory. They actually let the, 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 the people they conquered alone and let them continue to do what they do. So, I haven't ever come across a reason what I can do with that. So, and plus, it's been done by other folks. So I, I, I haven't, that's probably not it's one. It's just tantalizing to think it's out there. You know, I've talked to Doug Preston about maybe LIDAR one day will finally reveal where it is. Although I think with LIDAR, you actually have to have like canopy covers or stuff. I don't think they'll ever find it because, you know, they, they buried it and then they killed everyone supposedly right. who did it. And then they, it just it just got covered over by the step, and you know it's gone, and it's all in the dirt. So whatever's there would be long deteriorated by now too. It, you would you would want a tomb that you could actually go into, but it may not be that. It may be that he was just buried, flat buried out. So you're basically saying you won't make shit up. Nope. Not that, not that, not that, not that. No, the thing, my niche that I've carved is the thing from history I use has to be real. It has to be real. Has to be real. Right. Yeah, yeah. Any other questions? Yes. How they have started? Uh, uh, I didn't write my first word till I was 35 years old. So uh, it was a long time for me. Uh, I had uh, toyed with the idea for about 10 years. I had a little voice in my head that was telling me to write. Every writer I've ever met has a little voice in their head that tells them to write. Now, it doesn't say write a bestseller, sell a bunch of books, and do all that. It just says, I need you to sit down and write. No matter how bad it may be, I want you to write, whatever it is. But I ignored it. I uh, started in the summer of 90. Uh, I wrote a novel. It took me a year. It was uh, about that tall which is not good, it's supposed to be about that tall, uh, 170,000 words, you know, and just awful, terrible novel. Um, and I wouldn't even let anyone read it to this day. It's so awful. But it's the greatest thing I'll ever write in my life. It's the only manuscript I ever kept because it, I started it and I finished it. And I kept it and I still have it to this day. Um, I wrote uh, seven more novels after that over... Um, the next 12 years. So there were eight. Five went to New York houses. They were rejected 85 times. I made it the 86th time, 12 years after I started. And that was The Amber Room uh, that uh, did it. That was the fourth novel I wrote. And then The Romanoff Prophecy was fifth, and The Third Secret was sixth. Ultimately, the seventh novel uh, got published uh, as The Kaiser's Web. So uh, four of the eight made it in their entire true form you know, all the way through the rest i stole from basically seen here seen there seen there and they're scattered all through the books uh so you know my my road to publishing was a very long road to get there from 
start to finish. I, I tell people all the time, I may not know anything about writing, but I'm a world-class expert on rejection. I understand it very, very well. Uh, and, uh, but it worked out for the good eventually, you know, I made well, it. Well, you're a poster boy for perseverance is oh, what you right. are. I mean, don't tell me you can't do it. It can be done. It, you just, you just got to want it bad enough. So mm -hmm. do you think that, you know, your legal practice and your legal training helped you not at a drop, all? Not a drop. The reason why that book's that tall is I wrote it like a lawyer. <laughs> lawyer write, legal writing is you say something over and over and over and over and over again. Repetition is very good in legal writing because you're trying to persuade. So you repeat it over and over and over again. No, not in fiction. In fiction, you say it once, <laughs> just one time. So that's why it goes way down. You know, you, I could take I could take 70,000 words out of that manuscript and never lose a thing from that story. It's, there's a lot of, it, I wrote it like a lawyer. It took me about six years to get writing like a lawyer out of my system. I, yeah. I didn't ask my question very well. I think what I really wanted to ask was about your work habits, you know, because. Well, you, the you, research, you know, yeah. most lawyers don't seem to suffer from writer's block, for example, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's. It's what you do. Well, I, I, I mean, I suffer from it. I get it every day almost, you know. Really? writer. Yeah, to me, writer's block is just, you, writer, writer's block is not what what you think it is, what I think are two different things. If you mean getting stuck, I get stuck all the time. I get stuck constantly, all the time, every day, stuck. And you find a way to get unstuck. To me, true writer's block is when the little voice in your head quits talking to you. Well, that's what I thought yeah. it was. And too. when it quits talking to you and telling you to write, you're done. And I know writers that's happened to, mm -hmm. that they don't have the voice in their head anymore and they have no desire to write any longer. And that, that to me is a much more serious malady uh, that comes along. But to get stuck, you're going to get stuck all the time. I mean, that's just going to be routine. You just have to figure out a way to get out of it. Anybody else? You're all paralyzed by our erudition. Come on. No questions? Yes, sir. Well, I, I will say my wife at the time, this is before Elizabeth, so I should say, uh, my wife at the time was, was, was um, I wouldn't say she was encouraging, but she was never discouraging. She just said, if that's what you want to do, do it. You know, and so she never, so she actually created a, an environment where I could do it. She never, she never got in the way. She never, never problem. Um, she just said, that's what you want to do, do it. I always wrote at the office uh, from about 630 to nine o'clock in the morning. No one ever actually saw me write. No one ever really saw me write a word for many years. I wrote alone there. Uh, so in that case, I had an environment where I could do it. Uh, and keep going. So it was then a matter of just me sticking with it. Now, I'm not a Superman. About four times during that 12 years, I, would, I came to a conclusion, this is a waste of time. I'm just, I'm, I mean, this is ridiculous. But after a few days, the little voice comes back and says, okay, the pity party's over. Let's get back to work because I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to drive you crazy unless you get back to work. And by then, I had recognized what the little voice was, the drive to keep you going forward. And I still have that voice to this day. It's still there to this day. And um, so, you know, for me, it was good. It just took forever. <laughs> you know, it just and when it happened that day, I was in Copenhagen when it happened. Um, it came in a fax. This is before cell phones. 
So there was a fax sitting there that said Random House had bought the Amber Room. And it's really odd because after 12 years and 85 rejections, I remember just sitting there and kind of lit, sitting there and just looking at the page. And, and I didn't jump up for joy and I didn't go crazy. I just kind of went, wow, it, it actually happened. You know, it finally happened. And it was, it was a tiny bit anticlimactic because after 12 years of it, but then again, it was also extremely satisfying. It was a, a, a little of both. It's hard to explain that, you know, when you go through so many rejections and then someone finally says yes, you just kind of go like, it's kind of like I equate it to when you're playing golf and you make the putt and it goes in the hole. Why do you jump up and down? Because you were trying to put it in the hole. <laughs> it's almost like you're shocked that it went in the hole when you're actually trying to put it in the hole, you know. But then again, putting in the hole breeds this, shocking reaction inside you so it's a contradiction that is what it was but i did go out and have a baltic lobster that night i did do that yes i did yes oh, anybody else yeah yeah that's right he he was born he was born the night before the day before i got that fax we had just gone to copenhagen for fun uh and um and the facts came the next day. Cotton was born the evening before when I was sitting there at the Cafe Nordon in High Road Plots. I'd already written 30,000 words of a new novel that I was calling The Templar Legacy. And Cotton was a very different guy in that, in that book, very different in many ways. And when I was sitting there that night, he hit me. He, no, 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 no. He needs to live right there, right there. He needs to have a bookshop right over there. He needs to be retired. He doesn't need to work for the government anymore. He needs to he needs to be a bookseller because I'd never read a thriller where a bookseller was the whole was the main guy. And for I were very good reason. Right, yeah. <laughs> and I and I and I wrote a, I read a lot of thrillers. I mean, back then I would read four or five books a month. I would I mean, I, particularly first thrillers. I would read a lot of those. Uh, and I just never had seen that before. So it was fresh. It was something a little different to put in there. So I went back home, threw away those 30,000 words and wrote The Templar Legacy, knowing that it would probably maybe get published one day because now I had a contract for two books. They bought Romanoff and Amber Room. Then uh, a year later, they bought Third Secret and Templar. And so uh, they both made it. And Templar to this day remains my largest selling novel to this day. Yeah. Well, there's some mystique about the Templars, they think. Which, Still you know. there, but it's Cotton's birth book, so he's born there. Ah. And, um, and I don't know why, but it, now it sold really well. That book had uh, almost uh, 20 printings in hardcover. There were a lot of printings of that book. So yeah. let's talk about the name for a minute. I don't know if we, what's the origin story of Cotton Malone, which isn't, you know, a usual name. Well, it wasn't mine. I have to say I can't take credit for it. I named him something else, and then I went to the writers, my writers group that night, told them who it was, and one of the ladies, Deva, was there. She said, it's the stupidest name I've ever heard in my life. And so I said, well, what do you want to call him? She said, why don't we call him Cotton? I said, okay. So she's thanked in the Templar legacy. She gets full credit for giving him his name. But he's actually called Harold Earl Cotton Malone. And um, it's like my father. My father's name is Harold Earl Berry, but he's never called, been called that in his life. He's always been called Sam. And no one has any idea why. <laughs> he doesn't even know why he's called Sam. He's just always been called Sam. And so I, I did that with Cotton, Harold Earl Cotton Malone. Now, how did Cotton get his name always in the books? He says, long story, long story. But if you read The Lost Order, you'll learn the long story. 
I finally explained it in the Lost Order. We've been having a lot of conversations about names with authors recently. People seem to want to know, you know, how you come up with with names. I'm trying to was Mark Graney last night. I loved his answer. That nobody nobody really follows volleyball, he said. So when he needs names, he finds the list like of volleyball teams from different countries and then he'll pick like one one first name and one you know, and the theory that it will be truly Well, I use a lot of names of people I know. Okay. There's a lot of lot of in the book. Like I said, this the construction works are all in this one. They're all in here. I use a lot of that. I enjoy doing that, and the people enjoy it to be in there. But the name has to fit. Yeah. It has to fit what I'm doing in there. And I make it very clear, there is no resemblance between you and this character. It's just your name. And you're not the only person in the world with that name. <laughs> so so make it clear. And uh, But I, I like to do that a lot. I do not do it if the character is particularly vile and and just horrendous i don't i don't i make the name up at that point even though i've had some people want to be that character (laughs) and i said no we're not going to do that we're not going to go there but uh uh and then my foreign names i make sure you can pronounce them you may not pronounce them correctly in your head even tchaikovsky but but (laughs) that one i did as a nod to him but if you'll notice in there i actually phonetically spelled it out one of the characters says how in the world do you say that Right. And, and he and he phonetically puts puts it out for you uh, because that's the problem. If you can't pronounce that name, you'll skip it. You'll just keep skipping over it. So you may not pronounce it correctly, but you can at least pronounce it. So I did with the first time that he's met, I put that in there so that you, the, you, you can I had to that. find Jim Rollins once at the Hotel Valley Ho where he forgot about the difference in time between, you know, the well, California. He wasn't registered right? under and James so Rollins. He was, he was registered under his I real name. Problem. And I went over to the Valley Ho to look for him. And, you know, no, there's no James Rollins well, here. We've traveled together right. before, and I've called but the room. I had, to, I I had said, to call back to yeah. the store and have them spell it for me. That's... <laughs> So I could then take it to I the desk. I picked up the phone before and said, could you give me Jim Rollins' room? And then I go, no, 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 no that's the wrong guy. Wrong guy. Yeah. Drew it up. Anybody else? No. Well, all right. Oh, yes, ma'am. No. Well, that'd be a nice, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking about maybe retiring her. I'm thinking about it, but I'm not saying I'm going to do it. Um, She's she's in and out the books, and she was prom- she was very prevalent in the first eight or nine Cotton Malone novels, uh, maybe you know the first ten maybe. Um, I have a new character you're going to meet here. Uh, her name is Trinity Dorner, and she's an interesting character, and she might she might take over Stephanie's job. Chef Stephanie may, uh, you know, her and Danny are together, and they may and Danny himself may phase out too. Uh, there's a new character in this book you're going to meet, too, Derek Coker. And uh, he's actually the guy who built our house, is Derek Coker. <laughs> and uh, he's the builder. So a natural to be yeah, in this and, uh, pie game. I love it. And so I, he comes back next year, in next year's book. I like him. He reminds me a lot of Danny. There's a lot of Danny in him, but he's a little different than Danny in, in some respects. So I might switch over and phase these into some new some new blood in there. Stephanie could still be there, but not as prevalent as she was. If you'll notice, I haven't done a lot with 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 her being directly involved in a few books because the adventures have, have worked out. And then um, in next year's book, there's a little surprise coming that's going to open up something for Cotton, open up some new avenues for Cotton. I'm trying to keep it fresh and alive. Remember the trick to writing these books? They all have to be the same but different. 
the same but different. That's the trick. And so I'm trying to to add in a little freshness that's that's not quite totally different than what you're used to. That you're used to. Patrick is over there, I suspect, yeah. with a question or two from the see, um, yes. virtual audience. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Roberto would like to know. He says, Steve, is there a historical topic that you were interested in writing about, but before you got started, another author wrote about the same thing? Post Anybody your topic. You to the, I have, you to I have not had that happen yet, but I've had it where we've written it we've written it simultaneously about it. Like Templar Legacy was one. Because, right. you know, Raymond Corey wrote, you know, if you want to read an interesting exercise, you read the Templar Legacy and you read The Last Templar by Raymond Corey. Those are the same story. They're the exact same story, told completely, utterly differently. And neither one of us knew one another. He wrote his years before. I wrote mine before. We never knew each other. We never had anything to do with each other, they, but they were published simultaneously. So that did happen there. Uh, Jim and I have dovetailed each other. I've written a something, and he's done it a couple of years later, but he was already working on it because he's like me. He stays a couple of years ahead. So we've dovetailed back and forth, but I've never had one. I'm very careful. Like, I'm not going to tell you about what the 2025 novel is going to be about so that you can't do that to me you know you can't get ahead of me and the 2024 books already finished and done and turned in so it's in the pipeline so i'm careful about not saying what i'm doing because I, I don't want someone to get ahead of me and then someone would say i copied them which is right. not real so somebody here with the great name dionysus olympian somehow i doubt that's their given name um asks let's see getting back to the subject of writer's block he goes he asks, so how do you solve writer's block? For me, it's just stop and go do something else. Uh, go play golf, go hit some golf balls, go do something else, T do something around the house. Just stop, go off, let it clear, and it all, It 99% of the time, it's okay by at least the next morning, usually by the later in the day. I just sort of stop. Don't, you can't just sit there and say, I got to do this. I got to do this. No, if, if it's not there, stop, stop completely. I've never been stumped to the point that, you know, I get shut down, not for more than a day, not for more than a day. You know, it's just, so you have to find what works for you. Some people go play tennis. Some people swim. Dan Brown hangs upside down. You know, he's got that bar that hangs upside down. Everyone has their thing, and you just have to find what your thing is. Right. And the same person uh, said, you know, he mentioned you've written about the Templars. Have you ever written about the, the Masons, or would you yeah, consider that? I touched on them a little bit, but just a tiny little bit. I feel sorry for them. They get blamed for everything in the world, and they're just a, they're just a social club, for God's sakes. They don't take over the world. They don't have anything to do with any of that stuff. They, they draw from history, and they draw from things and create their own little traditions. I know a lot of Masons. I know about them. They, they, it's fun. They enjoy it. They're not there to take over the world and do all kinds of bad so the things. So Elks, Elks Lodge wouldn't be sexy. Would I've kind of stayed away. I don't really, I only mentioned them just a tad in one of uh, one of the, the Masons, just a little bit in one of the books. I stay away from them. But what was the society? You did one of your American series. You did have a, a society that started with George Washington. That was Society of Cincinnati, which is real. Okay. That's actually a real society. Right. But I And I made them... I mean, they're just a historical society from the Revolutionary War. I mean, I made them really exciting and all kinds of I things know going on. Right. You know, and I never heard a word from them, by the way. That's interesting. 
never even a thank you for that. Nothing. I made them like sexy and all kinds of cool stuff. And they, nothing. I got nothing out of it. We went up to their house. They have a house in D.C. which And and went through and that's all in the novel. And they never, nothing. Never heard a word from it. They could have invited me to their ball. You know, they have a ball every year. I never got an invite. Nothing. I would for them. I would have done it. Yeah. You've written about skull, skull and bones, right? Society. No, I have not because that's another one. That's just God, they don't, they're harmless. You know, there's a lot, you can, you can put all the mystery you want into it, but it's just, it's a fraternity. It's just a dead poet society it, kind it, of thing. Kind of thing. It's yeah. just, they're not trying to rule the world or anything. No. No, the Templars actually did rule quite well, they a did, chunk but of the world. They were, they were a very, very, you know, powerful organization. Yeah. So powerful that the Kings Right. had to get rid of them because they were threatening them. They actually wanted southern France to become their own country. Mm-hmm. They wanted that whole area down there to be their whole land. And they got so powerful that, you know, Philip IV said, no, I'm getting rid of them. You know, we're getting rid of them. And they did. They wiped them out. They just wiped them off the face of the earth. Yeah, it was ugly. Right. But, of course, conspiracy. They were a threat to to monarchs. They they got a little too big, and they began to believe their own stuff, you know. you know, They, they, they were invincible and could do whatever, and— they found out they weren't really quick. Anything else? Yeah, Jean would like to know, um, is there a historical period that you would, she writes, refuse to write about or that you're just not interested in writing about? No, no, I wouldn't say not at all. No, I think everything's, oh, I've done every, I've done a wide range from ancient times up to now. I, I'm not partial one way or the other. If it's something cool, something real from history that catches my eye, I'm cool. I'm good with it. I just know. I don't have any bias one way or the other. Equal opportunity. Very much. I just want something very interesting from it. I've done, I've done from uh, all the way back to what, 1500 BC with Alexandria Link up to uh, the Cold War. Yeah. Someone suggesting Serpent Mounds as, as a setting, possible setting. Where are they? Um, Sutter Serpent Mounds. Serpent Mounds. I have to look all that up and see. See what it is. You never know. How do you know that? <laughs> ah. <laughs> he knows. Okay. I know how to Google that now. I'll find out about it. That sounds fascinating. Right. I'll do that now, too. Right. Those, those are indigenous people where they're buried there in those mounds? Nobody knows what it is. Another one was most likely indigenous people. That's what I want, you know. I, yeah, I don't want a definitive answer. I want, I want to be able to have fun with it. Yeah. Anything Is that else? No more. Uh, well, maybe for some of these folks. Any more? Oh, we got new questions. Yes. I have to tell you, I really didn't like history in high school. She didn't either. She hated it. Hated it. Hated it. And to be honest with you, I did too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's what we want you to do that. Though. And I have to say, when I was in high school, I did I didn't like history either. It was t- it's taught facts, figures, boring, uh, and and never the why. The why is what's interesting. And if you tell a story and you put it all together. And people say, oh, now I know why. Okay, I see what, yeah, I got it here. But, you know, they don't. And it's, 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 they brought me to Tennessee years ago to address the Tennessee history teachers from all over the state. High school history teachers came to this convention. 
and they asked me, well, how do we teach history better? And I, I said, well, y'all are the teachers, first off. I don't know the first thing about teaching. Only thing I would say to you is you got to make it fun. you got to make it a story. you got to make it where they, they're interested in it and they want to know the outcome. you got to make it that way. And that's, that's what I try to do with the books. That's what I try. Was back in the back, someone had Yes, ma'am? We do? That's a foundation Elizabeth and I created about 14 years ago. And we go around the country and we raise money for historic preservation. And we do it in however the community wants to use us. Sometimes it's a gala. Sometimes it's a big dinner. Sometimes it's a luncheon. Sometimes it's a writer's workshop where we teach writers. We've taught about 3,000 writers. And you buy your way into all those things with a contribution to the project we're there to support. We don't charge to come. We pay our own way. So all the money goes to the project. And we've raised about $3 million for about 80, 80 85 projects around the country. Um, we haven't done anything in 2021 or 22. We're looking at 23 now. We're talking to, we do about three a year now. So we're looking at 23 to get back into the swing of things. Again, they're very personal and they rely on very much contact. We can't do it. You know, we have to be right there to make it happen. So uh, we figure next year we should be able to get back in and do it again. Anything, Patrick, you're looking at your phone again. I'm just reading about Serpent Mound. It's freaking fascinating. <laughs> I'm going to check it out. You better grab this right before President Chaz. Yeah. <laughs> now we've told the world, see, so that I'm going to write right. that book far be yeah, before serpent, me. Yeah, Serpent-shaped uh, effigy mound, mm -hmm. all kinds of interesting yeah, history. Fabulous. Yeah. Anything else? Any more questions? Well, I want to. Oh, oh yes, ma'am. Uh, well, you know, if you noticed in the cotton books, the time has stopped. So no one's aged. You know, Gary's still 16, Cotton's still staring down 50. So it's kind of stopped. So I don't know if we'll go that far unless I'd have to age him. So I'd have to age him up maybe 10 years. Um, and then it's getting a little unrealistic in some respects, you know, um, I guess he could still keep doing it, but you, I kind of sixty is not fifty. It's not. It's not unrealistic, but it's for for an action thing sequence. I mean, I could do it, but I'd have to tone some things down a little bit, uh, and to be realistic about it, you know. And so, um, so I don't know if that'll happen, uh, whether that'll happen or not. But um, there might be something else happening though that might solve that problem though and i don't want to tell you what that is but we may solve that problem another way and keep me happy too keep me happy too yes sir to get rid of you talking about henrik thervallison yeah uh that was jim rollins he did that he told me to kill him um uh, the uh, Paris Vendetta, this is, you can read my books in any order. Those of you who've never read me before, I don't write them where you have to read them in sequence. The only one where something happens is the Paris Vendetta. And what happened in that book was Henry crossed the line. He didn't, he murdered those people. He didn't, it wasn't revenge. It wasn't, it was, it was revenge. It wasn't self-defense. It was, he just murdered them. <laughs> And that was an ethical dilemma that I didn't think I could resolve because what am I going to do down the road? You know, he, he murdered these people. Now, he had a reason to murder them. I get it, you know, why he did it. But, it you know, it, they killed his son, and so I, I got it. But he still murdered them. And so I was talking to Jim 
about it. And he said, well, it's simple, just kill him. You know, just get rid of him. And so I did. And that's the only book where there's that, where there's something there. And, it, and it's referenced down the road in other books where Cotton will lament about, you know, that his friend is gone, his friend's gone. But I had actually run out of something to do with that character, too, to be honest with you. But there's still one more story with Henry. Uh, we never have found out what happened to his wealth. So I've never dealt with his estate. And in the time stopping, that murder, that death of Henry has just happened, basically. So I can, I can go forward with that. And I can always do a story, uh, a prequel story, you know, where Henry's alive. But I'd really done all I could do with him. So it was time to move on from that character. As with Stephanie, I've probably done all I can do with her. And the same with Danny. So it's probably time to bring in some new folks that are similar but different. Similar but different. That's the trick, always the trick. You can't be different, different, and you can't be similar, similar. Yeah, now you get in trouble with both of those. you got to be similar but different. And you'll notice that when uh, TV shows, uh, I don't know if you watch NCIS, you know, they took Mark Harmon's character out. They brought in the new guy, Gary Cole. He's somewhat like Mark Harmon, but he's also quite different than Mark Harmon. He's close enough that you don't, you're okay with him. But he's different enough to make him interesting. And that's the trick. And that's the, the hard part to make it happen. You get in big trouble when you just try to go in a completely different direction because you're used to what you're used to. And you don't want to just stop. You'll just go watch something else is what you'll do. Oh, yes? Whoop, one more. Yeah, she does that continuously. Never be done. No, 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 no. No, we keep blowing up parts of it, too. If you In the Cassiopeia vid, I did five novellas with her, with M.J. Rose. And in that castle, some damage happens to it. So I kind of set her back a little bit. In real life, they're actually building one in France. And they're only about halfway through. It's going to take another 25 years to finish it. So Because they build it with the techniques from the 13th century. So Cassiopeia, yeah, the same thing. We'll, we'll keep going. I don't think she'll ever finish it. No, I think we'll just let it keep going forever. And, and, uh, and if she does get close, we'll blow some of it up. We can always blow a little bit of it up. Well, we've come to the part since we've all been very patient sitting in these chairs. Whoop, sorry, for quite a while. Or I'm going to give a couple of things away. So first, let's thank Steve for coming. Yay. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.